This is the second tape in a three-part series by Jim and Daisy Durkin on the subject of marriage, child raising, and sex. David Sapansky is the narrator. On side one of this cassette, you will hear basic principles needed to successfully raise your children. There are dozens of different theories on child raising and discipline, even among Christians and even among those who are trying to discipline their children according to Scripture, there are differences. So people who see it in Scripture, there seems to be even uh, wide variations there. Yes. Is there a uniform standard? How do we find that? I think, again, one of the great problems is reducing God's Word to techniques instead of understanding the fundamental aim and the fundamental principle of the reason for the admonition or the commandment in the Word of God. Now, once that is properly understood, then a right application can be made to the specific situation. For instance, there could never be a standard of discipline for children because they are different. Some are extremely sensitive, and a word of admonishment here and there and proper teaching from the Word of God, the child is very receptive all of its life to the slightest correction, is willing to please its parent. Other children, very obstinate, take a whole different approach to their lives. So there's not a standard of discipline, like each wrongdoing would require this number of strokes, or these number of words of a lecture, or this tone of voice, or because it's completely different. So we should lay out of our minds immediately any idea that we could come up with a standardized set of instructions that would meet every need. And it, that's obvious because people simply are different. Now, if we could lay that aside, then a far more important learning process has to take place. As someone said, the first step in training a dog is to train yourself. That certainly is far more true in raising children. The first step in raising children is to train yourself. And that goes back to our previous remarks concerning marriage and family and the home, that a right and proper perspective about God be put into our lives. Because it is impossible to transfer anything to the child but what is in ourselves. And if I have no real respect for God, then my children will have no real respect for God in the period of time that I am influencing them. Others may come in their life later, and therefore a deep respect for God may evolve. But in that early period, will not be there. If I am concerned primarily with my problems and my feelings and my situation, and not with God in right perspective, the children will be primarily concerned with their feelings and their problems and their situation. And so we implement the problem in the children that is in ourselves, and this cannot be avoided. All that can be done if we follow the Word of God is ultimately those things will be worked out for good as we work out for good. So there has to start this basic concept. You've mentioned two things, respect and godly fear. Now, that obviously starts then with the parent. If I have a genuine respect for people, a genuine respect for property of others and my own, a genuine respect for the rights of others, a genuine respect for the godly rights, my own godly rights, 
not insisting upon them, but a right respect for them so that I try to maintain them in a proper relationship, then that attitude will pass by example, commandment, admonishment, all the other things. It will pass gradually to the children, some very quickly, others longer period of time, but it surely and completely will pass. Now the same situation, the area of godly fear. If I have a deep reverence for the Word of God, in the way I hold the book, in the way I turn the pages, in the way that for myself, I do not lay other things on the Bible. Now, whatever someone may think about that being superstitious, it is not superstitious to me. I reverence the Holy Word of God, and I do not pile junk on it and so forth and so on. The children see this. They have the same feeling toward the Word of God. Some people have said they have seen the way in which I turn a page in the Bible. They're going to say, you treat that Bible with care. It's the Word of God to me. It's the things of God. I do not make the church a playhouse. When God's name is spoken to me, I let that be a rich thing to me. The name of God is not a light thing to me. And because that deep sense of reverence is there, that sense of reverence is not only passed to the children, but it's passed to others as well. They pick up that. So it's that basic attitudinal changes which have to be wrought in us as the foundation for all successful child raising. See, we've had some of our own problems. I don't know how much to bring in our own experiences here, but we've had our own problems with our children, serious, difficult problems. But those problems in nearly every case. See, a child where it is as far as its stubbornness or its lack of listening or that's a problem the child has, but that can always be overcome. It's up to the parent to work to overcome that or other help that you may need. But the real problem many times, well, the real problem in every case is that I myself have not brought about those changes in my own life. And I'm really insisting that the child does and becomes something that I insist that he does and becomes when I am not that myself. See, I insist that he respect me. I insist that he honors God. I insist that he, whereas I myself may not be doing those things. Now, if I am not, then he certainly will not be doing that. Now, assuming, however, we have brought about those changes in our life where we have a respect for God, and a respect for our neighbors and our friends and so forth, and a godly fear toward reverencing the things of God, then we're ready to know how to transmit that to the child in an intelligent way. Well, the first thing to remember is that we are not trying to discipline the child merely for the short range, nor are we trying to train the child for the short range. Now, many parents make the next step of failure right here. After the fact that they have not allowed these attitudinal changes to work in them, the second thing is to constantly think only in terms of the short term. The child is doing something that I do not like. Therefore, the Bible says I should spank him or whatever to cause him to do what I wish him to do now. Whereas in our mind, it should never be forcing the child to do what I want him to do now as the end of our discipline. 
because that can change from time to time. One time, the child will be in a noisy attitude of behavior, but because I'm feeling pretty good, I overlook the child. is isn't disturbing me. The next time I'm disturbed and I'm nervous and I'm distraught, the child makes a far less noise, and I jump up and get the rod of correction, either my voice or the strap or my hand or shake him or something like this. He's very confused. He has no sense of knowing now right or wrong. One time a loud noise produces no reaction. The next time a very soft noise produces a tremendous reaction. Always disciplining the child from the short-range point of view, the child finally comes to only look at punishment to be an erratic something that comes from the parent at his pleasure and has no relationship to right, wrong, good, bad, or anything else. He now cannot relate to a consistent God picture because he's beginning to see God as a very erratic God that for no reason at all punishes you and the next moment you can do anything you wish to do and that's all right. But God does not treat us like that and parents must learn not to treat the children from that short term point of view. Once again, it would come into the being of consistent in the discipline of the children and also not letting your own attitude and your own feeling enter in. That the discipline is because you have started discipline for a, for a particular reason. Then the next time you don't discipline because of you not being in a nervous or an upset condition. So if you let, if you begin to let your attitudes come into the picture, that then takes in that, that of not being consistent. But if you discipline the children on a principle, that the principle is uh, that you have laid down that if they do that, they're going to be punished then every time they do it, then they're going to be punished no matter what, how you're feeling. But once again, you have to be consistent in, in the discipline. Yes. It is important, of course, that the husband and wife be together in their common dealing with the child. He must see consistency of word. Now, for instance, if he can go to the father and have the decision of the mother overturned or go to the mother and have her come against the father and have the decision overturned then he learns that authority is only that which you can negotiate for he never really learns to hear yes or no there are no yeses or there are no no's they're simply yes but now I can turn that into a no, or it's a no, but now I can turn it into a yes if I simply keep negotiating. Then, of course, that becomes his attitude toward God. How can I bargain with God? Instead of hearing the word of God as divine direction, he merely hears it as something he can do or not do as he feels it's expedient for him to do that. Many Christians are suffering from this terrible syndrome of never hearing God's word as God's word, because they never heard their father's word or their mother's word as a word to be heard and listened to. Now, it does not mean that sometimes the father and mother will not make mistakes in their decisions about the child, but there should be no differences openly between the father and mother to that young child. Later on, 
of course, the child can be brought in that they weren't always right, and that's why they had to change, and here's how they did it. And the child will understand that when he's older, 12, 14, 15 years of age, and he can grasp adult things. But the little child only learns how to become tricky or shrewd if he sees this division. Now, if there are any differences about the decision that was made in the dealing with a child, these things should be discussed privately between the husband and wife in quiet tones and try to reasonably find out what's better. If a mistake has been made, the same one who made the decision should go back to the child, say, I've been thinking about this, I've decided that I have a different idea about this now, and here's what I can let you do. So the child hears consistency. Here's a reasonable parent, able to change and willing to change, and yet able to accept yes or no from that person. Ask if the father's made the decision, goes to the mother, what do you think, mother? What did your father say? He said this, I agree with that. See, then if there's a change to be made, let the same person go back and make that change, and the child is at peace. He has an understanding from the two persons that he looks to. He's hearing consistency of word from them. Now, is there anything you'd like to add to that, Daisy? I was just going to say it goes back to the relationship of the husband and wife with each other. If the husband and wife's relationship is not good, even though both of them discipline the children and are maybe really strict and stern with the children, Yet they see their mother and father's relationship not good between the two of them. It doesn't have the effect on the children that it should have. I mean, the discipline of the parent doesn't have the effect by seeing that their relationship is not on a good basis. Oft times, of course, we have seen some things that we have taught everywhere, and I hope everyone hearing these instructions can understand the reason for that. Many times, discipline is given or withheld on the basis of hoping to win the child's affection away from the other parent. Mm. The mother will speak to the child and say, oh, your daddy is too harsh, your mother understands. Or the father, same thing. Why does your mother make you do these things? Well, daddy understands, and he will take you down, buy you a candy bar. And the whole principle here, of course, is to win the child's affection. It's a competitive thing between husband and wife. Now, see, laying then all of these areas aside, let us say they have worked these basic attitudinal differences out. So they've agreed that we're not going to be competitive in this matter. We see that as wrong. We have a right relationship with God now. Our attitude of respect is correct in ourselves. How now then do we transmit to the child these basic things? See, behavior patterns, frankly, are somewhat cultural. So what may be an acceptable behavior pattern in one strata of society or one culture of society will not be an acceptable behavior pattern in another. For instance, how you eat at the table. One, of course, if certain cultural situation may still eat with their fingers. We, in our American culture, would not do that. But even the difference between American and European, they will handle their fork and knife different. So what is acceptable in one place is not acceptable in another. So we're not talking about here what is a proper 
behavioral pattern for children. Parents know that according to what the Word of God teaches and what their general culture is. And the child should be brought up to fit that general culture with a respect for all other cultures so he can adapt himself to whatever the requirement is. But the basic thing then, the parent has to sit down and think, what is the long-range goal of the attitude, the heart, the life, the mind, the thought that we wish in our child, knowing that by the time the child is six or eight or ten, progressively difficult after about the fifth or sixth or seventh year, but it can be done. The Word of God is very powerful. And if the parents have failed by the sixth year, it is not too late to work on it in the seventh year or the tenth year or the twentieth year. But nevertheless, it's better if you are a Christian when you're, you know, before your children are born, to start working on that principle from the very beginning. The long-range attitude. And once again, here it is. You are trying to develop in the child two attitudes. An attitude of respect. Now, respect means, from two different words, spec means to see, and re means to look again, or to do it again. So respect means to look at a person a second time. Like you say, that person is worth a second look. It means we have no respect for that person. When we say, I did a double take on that, or man, he's worth looking at twice, or he's worth looking at again, or she's worth looking at, we mean we respect something there that we saw. When we really respect a person, we pay attention to that person. When they speak, when they say something, when they're in the room with us, we greet them as they come through the door. Now, that's respect. That long-range attitude needs to be worked in the child. And many children, you can see by the third or the fourth year of their growth, they have no respect for other people at all. You speak to them, just walk on by. No respect. Don't give you a second look. Well, now that child is developing a very serious attitudinal problem which will affect everything he does in the rest of his life. The second thing is that godly fear and reverence, so that when the father speaks, the Bible tells us that when the gray hairs enter the room, the young shall stand up, or let every child learn to fear his father and his mother. It means a reverential godly fear. Same word used of speaking of God. Fear God. Fear your parents. There's a feeling there that when father speaks, the child listens. When mother speaks, the child listens. And it's no trouble then for the child to say, when God speaks, the child listens. See, that attitude of double take. I look again when God speaks. I listen carefully when God speaks. Why? Because I listen carefully when my father speaks. Now, that attitude is fostered partly by the attitude of the husband and wife. If the husband speaks and the wife begins to sing a song or twiddle her thumbs or look bored or look out the window or go over and turn on something and play music and, you know, actually saying to her husband, what you have to say is of no value to me, whatever. Or if the wife is speaking and the husband is, oh, for goodness sakes, woman, knock that stuff. I have no time for such foolishness. The child is hearing that and he's developing an attitude of no respect. I will respect you. I will not respect this one selective respect or none whatever. It's the only fitting his own needs. Now, that godly fear, when the wife looks at her husband when he speaks, the husband looks at his wife when she speaks, pays attention, child interrupts, we don't stop and say, 
never mind, mother, I'm going to talk to Chaza. Say, wait, son, your mother is speaking. I wish to hear what she has to say. I'll speak to you in a moment. Oh, daddy, I would... Be silent. I have to hear what your mother has to say. See, then the child, he sits down, he listens to what mother has to say also. And he's beginning to develop the attitude of his needs are not the most important thing. But the respect of others is the most important thing, which, of course, is exactly what the Word of God teaches, to esteem the other better than yourself. Now, it's that long-range point of view. And what are we aiming at? A child, when he's grown up, that is circumspect. See, now here we're back to the word spect again, to see, which means now the child can be looked at from any point of the circumference, and he is the same. He is not one thing to your face and another thing behind your back. He is not words to your face and different in his character traits, that his words and his character match up. So you can look at him from any point of view. Second thing that needs to be there when he's grown is transparency. What you see on the outside is what you see on the inside. He does not have a thought life pattern built on false foundations, but he has learned to respect truth and to honor that truth because integrity. He has seen it in his parents. He has found it in God. He has seen it in the surrounding atmosphere because his parents have shown him how to distinguish good and bad. And his whole life is founded upon integrity. I was thinking also of submission that we were speaking on the other tape about wives submitting to their husbands. And that's where it's really starting to be learned. It's when they're a child. If the child learns submission to the mother and father, then it's easy to carry it right into their adulthood the submission, and then like Jim was saying, it's easy then to carry it into being submitted to God. Now we come to some areas here, how you pass on these things. Now remember, the basic thing is by the powerful teaching technique of example. If that's what the child sees in her early years, that's what will be worked into him in the years to come. He may get a little shaky in his teen years, but ultimately he comes back to that truth that he saw. On the other hand, if he doesn't see truth, not only will the teen years be difficult, but he must learn those things he should have learned, and he must learn them later when it will be much more difficult for him to learn them. But thank God again, he can learn them. If the right person gets hold of him at that time or his parents really change, ultimately he can also learn them. But it's much more difficult, far better to learn when they're young. But we come to the area, in addition to the powerful area of example, we come to the things that a parent can do. He can, here again example plays a part, he can show by his reverence for the word of God that the commandments of God are important to him. The mother can show by her comments about and her reading of the Word of God, that the commandments of God are important to her. So then the child is brought into the family circle. The book is held reverently. It isn't a book thrown aside with other books piled on top of it or a book covered with dust. It's a well-worn book, a well-used book, a good book. And then we say, we are going to teach you the commandments of God 
which have so helped your mother and father and blessed us and caused us to love one another and love you. And what are these commandments? Here are the commandments of God. And then we begin to take the beautiful things out of God's Word, as much as the child can understand, and things he does not understand, because he doesn't have to understand it. There's something in the reading of the Word of God, something in the look of the eye, that the child is able to see and grasp of the commandments of God. And he hears that, see. So much of the Proverbs are spoken from the point of view of a father and a mother speaking to the child. And he he captures the excitement of that deep belief that these are the commandments of God, and they can be trusted and depended upon. Now, if that is followed through, the thing that follows after commandments is instruction. Not only instruction in secular matters, but instruction from the Word of God. How to apply this? The child yearns for instruction. If it has that basic attitude of respect beginning to be developed, and it will be there, there's no child ever born on the face of this earth that if the parents have respect for God and for each other and for their fellow man, that child will have that attitude of respect beginning to develop in him. Now, therefore, if the parents begin to show him how to apply the Word of God, he yearns to do this. It's like everything is in favor of the parent raising a good child. Did we talk about the devil and his temptations? Why, certainly the devil is here in the temptations. But people have been raising godly children for thousands of years in spite of the devil and all of his temptations by following the principles laid down in the Word of God. So it's this sense of instruction coming from the hearts of respectful, godly parents. They don't have to be perfect, but following the ways of God the best they know how, that that child begins to hear instruction. It isn't merely words mouthed by parents who do not believe these things. But the child is hearing that deep sense of he's really hearing the voice of God in his little juvenile mind, little tiny baby mind. He's really hearing the voice of God in his parents. And it has a profound effect on his life. Now, traditions is really another method of example and instruction. It's merely how we do things. If he looks around him and the body of what he sees, for instance, if he's in a sound church where godly discipline and behavior are administered also in the lives of people, and so that you've got a sound, joyful, happy, peaceful church, then everywhere he goes, he hears essentially the same word. Oh, this is the way we do things. This is the way we do things. Here again, the natural desire of the child is to fit right in with what is being done. Though foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, yet the rod of correction will drive it far from him. But part of the rod of correction is simply the peer pressure that he finds around him. And it's much easier for him to submit and flow along with whatever example he sees. Now, if when he's with other children, disrespectful children, if he's in the presence of disrespectful elders, and those disrespectful elders are talking about 
the preacher and his rotten sermons and they don't like uh, the way his wife dresses and the rotten church and the elders are no good and the people in the church are all a uh, bunch of dinglings and whatever other method and sometimes these things can be spoken very nicely but once again the child isn't hearing just the words he's hearing the disrespect in the voice he pretty soon is doing the same thing but if everywhere well, there can be exceptions to that. No church is perfect. But if basically the things he sees in those that count are that deep, caring attitude, right traditions, he simply slips into the traditional mold. Traditions are not bad. Bad traditions are bad. The Lord spoke about bad traditions. But if those traditions are founded on the Word of God, then they are good traditions. You've mentioned uh, such traditions as communion, if they could be called that, communion, or say baptism, or some of the things that church life entails, yes. that the, the child needs a sense of awe and respect for these things, yes. and that's part of uh, building that character. Yes. And there can be that deep sense, too, we've seen it, if the parents sit there in a Sunday service and pay attention to the ministry, when the word is coming forth, remarks to the children, oh, how good it is to hear this man of God. That's the word of God. Very shortly, the child is paying attention. And it's amazing. I have been astounded at the spiritual insights. The children of four, five, and six years had a real understanding of what that minister was saying. Couldn't remember everything in detail. Wasn't a memory thing. Yet somehow they caught the essence of what he was saying. Because the parents respected the word of God as it was coming forth. See, so important that that basic heart, mind, and attitude be there. Now, of course, we come to the area that, and it's just a realization that it's so. Where the Bible says that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. In spite of the fact that everything is set up, if the parent will show these proper attitudes, it is also true that this foolishness, because of sin, and also because of the fact that the child is a child, he doesn't know good from bad or right from wrong, he's just, he's just a child, why would he know? But based on that then, it's only natural to assume, and that all the world testifies to it, that children will from time to time disobey. Far less so if these proper attitudes are in them than if not. But children will disobey. The clear instruction of their parents, the clear word of God. Someone will tempt them. They'll get the idea in their own mind. They're not feeling good. Their little untrained souls will manifest themselves and they become angry and jump up and down, try and pull off a temper tantrum or something to get their way. Because they're basically selfish. They've not been converted. What else would they know? Then I, me, my, my, I want this, I demand that. They wouldn't know anything the other. They have to be trained in them. Now, therefore, we come to the point of view of correction. But see, correction now is in its proper place. Now we say, correction from what? Well, he's making too much noise, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make him stop. Why? Well, because I don't want him bugging me improper reason for correcting a child. Now, whereas it is right to correct a child for the short range, 
because he may be running over the edge of a cliff and you have to stop him. So you have to do whatever you, you can do to stop him. Or he may be doing something else that could be very detrimental to himself and yourself, and therefore it's proper that you correct him for the short range. But only if you understand where you're going in that correction. So then you have to decide what is needed here. Is what is needed a physical correction? Sometimes the child will understand nothing beside that. And I doubt very much if a child, very many children, and I don't know if any really, could not have properly used some sense of physical discipline in their early life patterns. I've heard of children that were raised without that ever happening, but you'll probably find the Lord brought it in one way or another. In other words, maybe the father did not say to them or the mother, whack, 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 don't do that. So they went ahead and did it anyhow and touched the hot tea kettle all by themselves and burned their hand good, and so the physical discipline was there. But something must very clearly say to us, do not do that, it is extremely dangerous. And usually physical discipline is the pretty good means of those extreme types of things. If the child has respect for the parent, the look of the parent, Bible speaks about he shall guide me with his eye. The look of the parent, the slightest displeasure on the face of the parent is enough, the same as the displeasure of a husband toward his wife or a wife toward her husband if there's that deep love relationship between them. The slightest thing that upsets that beautiful feeling of peace and love and relationship is caused to immediately take note and say, what's wrong? Something must be done. Same thing with a child. When the father looks at the child, the slightest look of displeasure, that deep sense of respect is there. There's a feeling within the child of pain. Though you have done nothing physical, the child almost feels as though it's physical. And to him it is physical. He can feel it. And he does not wish that. He immediately is willing to withdraw from that position in order to see that face change so that he is able to say once again, peace if he respects. Now, if he has no sense of respect, then he doesn't care what the father or mother look at him. Because if he feels he's across the table and they really can't get to him, or he's in company and the father and mother can't really do anything at that point, he'll get away with more and more things until they're finally forced to do something or say something. And then it's usually a wild scene where they're yelling at each other and the child and you've embarrassed me and shame. Once again, not from the long-range point of view but from the immediate sense of embarrassment. But that goes back mostly to the parent's failure to instill in the child through commandments and admonishment and example and tradition that deep sense of respect because they haven't had it themselves perhaps, maybe because they didn't know how to impart it. So there then must come admonishment. Now admonishment from my point of view is the gentlest form of correction. Correction to me is you're actually beginning to very strongly moved to correct the child, which is twisted off. But admonishment can simply be, son, that is not a proper thing, daughter, that is not a proper thing. Here's why. Your father and mother were not pleased with you in that thing. We love you very deeply, but you must not do this type of thing anymore. And if that child has a proper sense of respect, this alone can have a very profound effect upon the child. Stacy? Well, I was just thinking, as Jim was speaking, that he said sometimes out in public, you know, the child will really pull off something. 
But I think if the child learns to respect the parents at home and the privacy at the home, then the same respect will be carried out in public. And oftentimes, the way they act in public is really the way they act at home. So I think that uh, it really, once again, goes back to the consistency that no matter where you are, you have to demand that respect of the children. Yes. Now, these additional things of correction and punishment are only different degrees of turning the child back into the right way again. But I say the basic understanding has to come from the point of view of understanding where you are going in dealing with the child. So reasoning has a real place in the child's growth and development if that basic area of respect is there. Now, if the area of respect is not there, then reasoning becomes a mockery to the child. He learns to out-reason you after a while. And they really can learn to do that quite well in the limited area that they have to deal with. They can out-reason you and out-think you. And, of course, it goes without saying that the consistency of a parent's life, his dealings with his wife or her dealings with her husband, dealings with the neighbors and the friends and the church people, the things he hears and sees, and the consistency of life toward the child himself or herself. See, consistency is really the final speaking of a life. If a man is settled in what is right, he will ultimately be consistent in what he does. And that's the thing we're speaking about, about being transparent and being circumspect. So when you see the man at the front, you see him at the back and from all sides, and you see him inside. If he's come to that place of honesty and integrity, which he must strive for, he doesn't have to be perfect, but that's where his heart is, his desire is. And he's trying that with his wife, she's trying it with her husband, then the children, as they grow up, will see that growing life change for the good in the parent. They can make mistakes, provided they're willing to admit those mistakes at the proper time, not get too defensive about them. Children are remarkably able to bounce back from all kinds of serious errors that the parent can make because everything I say, once again, is set up by God in favor of raising a godly, well-mannered child. Jim and Daisy now respond to questions commonly asked about child raising. Here are some questions that have been asked that have been submitted to us about child raising, child discipline. Why is it that some parents don't discipline their children or do very little of it, even though it is clearly taught in Scripture? What fears or character deficiencies, if any, prevent them from giving proper discipline? What can you say to people about disciplining their children, and how far should you go in this? It seems that most parents are very touchy on this subject. You'll find that Christian parents, now we're speaking of, do not discipline their children when they have had a clear admonition in the Word of God. Now, I assume we're speaking about in an absolute sense here, do not discipline their children. Because if we're referring here merely to differences in discipline or differences in approach, that may be something we need to look at according to what the parent's estimate of what the child really needs at that one time. And it certainly does not necessarily mean that one who disciplines their children very strongly is necessarily at that point better than one who does not discipline them quite so strongly. Because 
the one who disciplines them very strongly may decide after a period of time that was too strong and begin to back off. The one who disciplines them more lightly may decide after time to increase that, whatever the case would be, according to what the child needs. So I don't exactly know how to answer that except to say it's rightly. A parent has to make a judgment there as to what's right or wrong, assuming the other things that we talked about on the other tape are right, that proper respect, that proper fear of God, and those attitudes are right. So then it's a matter of judgment, and that can be gradually changed by strong leaders in the church who have had experience in these areas guiding either one or both parties to a more correct approach to discipline. But if we're talking about one who does not discipline their children, and there are parents like that who really do not. They simply will not use any physical means or any admonishment or correction. It will almost always be that the man or the woman fears to begin disciplining the child for a internal fear, that they will begin beating the child senselessly or without restraint. Or a second thing is usually that they themselves received little or no discipline, and therefore they are really doing with their children what their parents did with them. They are not taking the Word of God as their real guide. But I say once again, it's important to distinguish between do not discipline or discipline in a different way than you would discipline. Sometimes I think, too, that they're afraid of losing the love of the children if they discipline them. Instead of going by what the Scripture says, that if we love our children, we're going to discipline them, we're going to chasten them. Then I think another thing is that sometimes they're afraid inwardly that if I start disciplining a child, knowing that it's a long, drawn-out process, they're afraid that if I start, then I may stop. But if I want to start, I need to go on, but they're afraid that they won't be able to carry it through. And so they, rather than start, they just let it just slide and not discipline their children. I think some people may have the question, well, what about, say, someone in the church that they know who is obviously inconsistent, according to some of the things that you've taught, in the way they're disciplining their children? What can they say to these people? Uh, Should they say anything? How do they do it? Because it is such a touchy area. Well, assuming they want to help this person and that they do have some way of approaching them. We can always take the approach, though it's somewhat risky, but not a reason for not taking the risk. If we really see a situation, and our own house is in order now, this is an important thing. Our own house is in reasonable order, then we can approach that brother, brother to brother, sister to sister, sometimes family to family, but that's more difficult because now the man sometimes, and here's the area you're running into, that area of pride, ego, maintenance, The man sometimes has to maintain his position publicly, but privately he can hear admonition in this area. The wife the same way. That's why the Bible says that the older teach the younger how to love their husbands, but also applies to child rearing. Most women are not at all that certain that they're raising their children right. They maintain publicly that they really know what they're doing, but deep down inside they don't think they know what they're doing at all. 
and the man exactly the same way. He wants his child Christians. He wants his child to grow up well, but he's not sure that he's doing the right thing at all. And so here again, the built-in desire is that God has made us that way, where we really do desire admonition. Now then, if a person comes humbly, see, not from the point of view of like, you know, dummy, I'm going to now tell you how to get it done, but really comes humbly, gently, lovingly. If he also has maintained a relationship of brother, brother, and brother, sister, a real one, where he has surrounded that man with love and friendship, then he can be heard. But if he does not, and he sees something that needs to be handled, he had best go to the pastor or the elders and let them take the matter under advisement and do it themselves. Because otherwise, if that relationship is not there, as you've mentioned, it is a touchy area and can have great backlash and reverberations. It may even make the father or mother suddenly feel that their children have shamed them. They go home and start beating on the children. And, of course, that's disastrous for the children. Or they beat on them when they're in public. Yeah. And then at home, they just let them go so that they can show, well, I do discipline my children, which really has no effect whatsoever. Well, we should have no hesitation. In go- we naturally have a inner feeling there, but not any real reason to have hesitation to go to a person we see really wrongly disciplining our children, disciplining their children, if we have properly established a right relationship with those people. Okay, another question. In disciplining children, is there a difference between the child rebelling or simply forgetting something? In other words, if a child continually forgets something that his parents are instructing him in, is it right to then spank him? Well, that's kind of a strange question in the sense that it's already assumed an answer in part. It's saying, is there a difference between a child rebelling and a child forgetting? Well, of course, there's a difference between a child rebelling and a child forgetting. If a child truly forgets, he forgets. But if the child continually forgets, and you see in other areas that he's not Necessary. He doesn't forget what he wishes to do. or Then the child has merely learned a tricky means of rebelling while disguising it as forgetting. And of course he needs to be dealt with on the basis that the forgetting is not forgetting at all. It truly is rebellion. And here again we have to be careful of the word rebellion because rebellion in our mind takes place of, you know, just violent altercations and... But rebellion is a very subtle thing of the heart. The violence is only an ultimate outbreak, but it's a subtle thing of the heart. It just simply says, I hear you, and I won't do that. That's rebellion. And the forgetting, if it's true forgetfulness, in other words, a child has weaknesses everywhere in that area, then he may have a deficiency that the Lord needs to heal. But I say once again, if he is quite able to remember other things, which we always found... Our children were able to remember all kinds of things except sometimes the things we told them to do. And then we had to deal with them on that basis, and then their memory improved shortly after that. In discipline, does the rod always mean a spanking? Is there a place for reasoning with younger children? Yes, there really is. But um, and certainly the rod does not always mean spanking. The rod is a general term there. The rod, however, does include spanking, and spanking is a very real part of the use of the rod. So it's not to be saying, well, it's merely 
figurative and it doesn't really mean anything. No, it's literal enough too. But admonishment, correction, even the giving of commandments, even the look in the father's eye or the look in the mother's eye or the holding of a hand in a certain thing or the pointing of a finger is all a part of the application of the rod. In other words, a general idea of certainty, of discipline and correction ending in the rod. Obviously, there's no reason to use the rod if a finger is enough to stop the child, or a look is enough to or a word, say, don't do that, and the child immediately responds. There's no need then for a physical rod to be applied to a child. But the rod is that ultimate means which the child can understand when its reasoning mind cannot grasp it, does not have enough development of right and wrong and conscience yet developed. It can stabilize the child and hold it in position until those other higher centers begin to develop and take over the work for which the rod is not any longer necessary. A well-raised child in adulthood does not need the rod because other centers have taken over and that is not to be done anymore. However, even society itself has found the need to retain the use of the rod in our restraining institutions. Now, hopefully, our children will never need that and they will not need that if they are properly instructed in the Word of God. One mother brought up the question, well, I go to discipline my younger children, and the son says, well, why, Mommy? Or why can't I do that? Or why was that wrong? And then she says she would start to reason with the child, and the child would say, well, but why that? And but why that? And then it just, you know, at what point is, does, is reasoning a right, uh, right thing in discipline? The point is that the child's reasoning centers are not developed along with the higher centers of conscience and discernment. Not yet. Now, unless that attitude of respect is put in the child, to reason with the child too much, the child will simply learn to develop techniques or methods to out-reason you. And many times, the why this, the why that, the why something else is exactly that method. It leads you further and further afield, and you never really are answering the question. Whereas many times, all that is necessary to say to the young child is, I am not able to explain that to you now. Mother loves you. Daddy loves you. You must not do this thing. It is wrong. See, what the child needs to hear is the word, it is wrong. It is like when God speaks things in the word of God. Many of the things that he says in there, when I read them, I don't understand why he said them. But it's up to me to say, God knows best. So he doesn't reason with me. He simply says, don't do that. Now, I could come up with all kinds of reasons, for instance, why under some circumstances it's all right to steal. Or why even under some circumstances it'd be all right to commit fornication or adultery. For instance, like, I'm shipwrecked on an island. Another woman is shipwrecked with me there. There is no one else. We are left there for three or four years. My wife is in another country. Her husband is in another country. My lusts are there. Hers are there. Does not God in these cases... See, we can always come up with endless reasons why. Unless I really accept what God says, do not do that. And then I go to him and say, then Father, help me. And he can show me how to possess my vessel in honor. Same situation with the child. The child must learn to hear it is wrong. And that must go into him. Not a reasoned response. Later on he will be able to reason and see, oh, now I see why that was wrong. But he first must learn to trust and accept 
simply by the word alone. Simply because mother is mother and father is father, and he fears the word of his mother and father. Look at the admonitions of Scripture. Very few of them go into explanations of why they are wrong. Simply says they're wrong. And in the book of Proverbs, I'm thinking about the case of the strange woman. He said, I discerned among the simple youths, one passing by her way, and she kissed him impudently. She said to him, come let us. And he went and did this till a dart strike through his liver. And see, just simple admonition. Do not do this. Commandment, do not do this. Now, a person can reason about many of these things, grown-up reason, same thing as a child would be doing. But the safe place is to simply accept the word of the Father, it is wrong. Now, later on, we can reason. Now, it's not wrong to reason a little bit, but not over much. Just, well, this reason, and then stop. It isn't even reasoning, it just simply is an additional little explanation. Well, why? Well, I can't explain that to you now. That's it, see. The child will accept that. It's mar- remarkable. They say, oh, okay, if they know they're loved. Stacy, did you want to add to that one? Well, I was going to say, a child, when they get around two or three, or usually when they start, shortly after they start talking, everything you say to them, they'll say why. So it isn't just when they are, you're disciplined a child that they want to know why. But even when they're playing or, or when you, when you go to do something, they'll say, well, why? Then you answer that and then, well, why? It isn't that the child is trying to find out really why. It's just oftentimes in a small child, it's a new word that they've learned and they're just using the why. I was thinking also, of children that are a little bit older, if they have respect for their parents, then the rod is necessary, but it's not as necessary. Because if a child has respect for its parents, then it wants to do things that pleases the parents. And when it wants to do things to please the parents, if the parents tells them not to do something or to do something, they will either not do it or they'll do it to please the parents, not because they're going to get punished for it or get a whipping. So I think that's the main thing to build in your child is the respect of a child, not only for a father, but also for a mother. Another question was, should children be made to pray? Well, depends on where the child is in his lifetime that we're speaking about. If we're speaking about a young child, and that child, there's a proper respect relationship developed between the husband and the wife, proper respect relationship developed with God and then with the child, the child will delight to pray. It will not be a heavy, I don't want to pray, I don't like to be nothing like that. The child will want to pray. If the child does not wish to pray, simply say, well, come and kneel beside your mother and daddy and pray with us. Anyhow, we need your prayers or some such thing as that. But bring the child to do the thing. Because habit has a way of fixing itself. And many of the good things we learn in life are simply the result of habit. Now, later on, there will be life and dynamic development. Remember, the child is not saved at that age. He is under the covering of his mother and his father. So he needs to learn what behavior is proper behavior, acceptable behavior. You see, we have the same problem. Let us ask this question. Should the child 
at the table be made not to throw the food at the parents? Well, you say, well, of course he should be made not to throw the food at the parents. That's ridiculous because that's wrong behavior. Why should he be made to do that? He doesn't want to do that. Oh, well, because that... Oh, well, then it becomes very clear, of course. The child cannot grow up with those types of attitudes toward people, toward parents, toward... So by enforcing the behavior, we fix it in the child. So he said, this is right behavior, this is wrong behavior. Later on, as those higher centers develop, he understands why this is right and this is wrong. In the beginning, he knows nothing about whether he should pray or not. Maybe he wants to play with his toy train or something. Come and pray. He comes and prays. Next thing, prayer is very important. It's important to mother, important to daddy. It's more important than the train. Then later on, he says, oh, I see that. I don't even play with my train anymore. But prayer is very important to me. Yes, he should be made to pray. But in most cases, he does not need to be made to pray. If his parents pray, he will delight to pray. Wants to wear the same clothes mother and daddy wears. Wants to go in the car when they go. Wants to pray when they pray. I was thinking also you've got to remember the interest span of a child. If you're going to pray for two or three hours and expect a three, four-year-old child to kneel there that length of time and pray with yes, you like you much. would pray, that would be too much. But realize that a child of that age span, interest span is very, very short. And so if you can gear your prayer to the span of a child, then the child will begin to want to pray with you. But if you make the child, even for a half an hour, kneel down there with you, after a while the child is just going to dread that time because they realize for half an hour I have to sit here and not say a word or not do anything. Uh, not realizing what prayer really is. And so, uh, but to be able to let the child learn how to talk to God is a very important part and a very important thing in a child's life. And then to ask the child to pray for mother and daddy or don't forget Aunt uh, Mildred is not feeling well today. Why don't you ask God to heal Aunt Mildred? God hears you, John, or God hears you. James, or God hears you, Joy. Oh, will you heal my Aunt Mildred, Lord? And see, you're beginning to develop a beautiful relationship there. Then, as my wife has said, that's very wise, develop his prayer life according to the ability he has, the capacity he has to understand. If a minute is all that he can pray at that time, let him pray for a moment. Encourage him, tell him it's a very fine prayer, then let him go play with his toy train. He's prayed, that's enough. A little later, it's two minutes or five minutes, or then who knows where God will carry him to. Another thing I was just thinking of when Jim was speaking there, when you as their parents are praying, if the child, like Jim says, pray with them for a minute and then send them on to play, to play but teach them to reverence you when you are praying, that they're not to interrupt you because you're talking to God let them know how important it is that you're talking to God and it's not a time that they can just keep running in every few minutes and say, well, Mama, I need to do this, Mama, I need to do that. But let them know that that's a very important time, that you're talking to someone very important to you. And as you teach them that they are to reverence you when you're praying, then they're going to begin to realize and sense the reverence that they need to have in praying and talking to God. Now, important it is to talk to God. Yes. 
Okay, another question. Should younger children submit to older children? Yes, in a limited sense. Now, that word has to be understood in the most limited sense. Mm -hmm. For instance, if I were to leave an older son to take care of the two younger sons, then in a reasonable sense, with proper instruction of my older son, the younger children should submit to the older. But that's a very limited thing. It cannot be a totally general thing. The reason is simple, that the older son or the older children do not have the judgment of the adult, nor do they have the discipline or control of themselves, or have they learned to act wholly unselfishly toward the younger children, and therefore they will take terrible advantage sometimes of the younger children. And this can be a very, very serious thing. But if there is that limited submission, limited authority, then it can be a very, very helpful thing to maintain the whole respect relationship of the entire family to each other. So within limits, it's an all right thing. But if allowed to an extreme, the older child will be like the totally dominant person, the younger children will have little room to grow. So there must not all the time the parents are there, it must not be, are you listening to your older brother? He's, that's not a good relationship. It's the parents mm -hmm. that the children should listen to, except in those special relationships where there is a need for that kind of thing. And again, if there is a general respect in the hearts mm -hmm. of the children, they will tend to rely more on the older brother or sister as a natural consequence, simply because they're older. See, you have taught respect for age. Very important to teach respect for age. So they will tend to rely on that. But they will not rely on it to the extent that they stop relying on mother and father because they realize that is limited authority, which is there, and not general authority. I was thinking also as you teach them the respect, but you also teach the older child that they're not to lord it over the younger children, that they are in authority and they have to submit, making the younger child just kind of a slave for them to wait on them. But then as you teach the younger child, especially like when the parents are gone, that the older child is, you know, in charge, but to teach the younger children that what the older one, the decisions the older one makes, is in their well-being, and that they're doing it looking out for them, if it can be on that basis. But I've seen it where the older children, um, the younger children are just really more or less a slave to them, everything they want. They say, well, I'm in, I'm in charge, and you have to mind me, and so everything they want, they want to drink a water or something. Um, and then the younger child re loses the respect for the older one. But I think if it's if it's handled with the parents explaining to both parties or to all the parties concerned, um, then I think it's it's a lot easier for the younger children, also for the older children, knowing just how far they can go in the, in the causing or having the younger children submit to them. Another question, why does a child whine more with his mother than with others? And I suppose a second question to that would be, then what can be done about that? From my point of view, it is that many women tend to whine. 
toward their husbands. And therefore the child whines toward the mother. Very heavy to say that, I know. But that is a general tendency, and most women observing life would know that is a generally true thing. You also have another problem that many times the woman, instead of realizing, acting under her husband's authority and therefore commanding and demanding proper respect from the child, she will constantly answer back things to the child like, Oh, you bad boy, you bad girl, I can't do a thing with you. I will have to tell your father on you and he is going to really... See, well, what they're actually in that voice, I can't do a thing. Well, that's all you have to tell a child. I can't do a thing with you. And she says, I'm glad to hear that. And boom, from then on, he does what he pleases. He does what she pleases. See, it's that approach to life which produces the, and that's what I mean by whining. I don't mean I say, but just that that approach to life, which I can't do a thing about this situation. Instead of saying, I'm under my husband's covering. He is an authority in this home, and these children are under that covering, and he has given me authority, and I say to you, young child, do not do that. Oh, yes, mother. Say, proper respect. The father says to the child, by every action, respect your mother. Very important that you understand. I say that's what mother and father are speaking. Child runs out, daddy, 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 daddy. He breaks off. What is it? Like, this is the most important possible idea. The child needs to be met. Be silent a while, son. I'll talk to you in just a moment when your mother has finished her word to me. Yes, mother. And then he holds the child. The child learns to discipline himself. Needs are not that important. You can see if it's an emergency need. But normally he just wants some. He demands some. He must have the attention. I want this. and He must be learned to, to hold that in. So he listens with respect to his mother. Now, mother, let's see what John wants. Let's see what Joy wants. Let's see what James Let's see what... Say, oh, now he gets the message that mother's conversation is very important and not to be interrupted. Same thing. The mother will often do this. The father's speaking to her about something that's very important to him or something he's talking to her about. Child come up. She just turns around and talks to the child, and then she goes off. The father sat there. Child looks, huh. I'm the important one, see. Now, that produces, in the long run, a whiny relationship around the mother to get its way. It's almost like a kind of relationship which admits defeat is the way of life, and therefore you have to whine your way through life to get it, instead of being strong enough to say, this is proper, this is right, and this is what must be done. And that is in the heart of the mother, whining children. Now, you can have a whining father, too. It's not just whining women, but it tends to be more on the woman's side to whine. They see, is there anything you'd see there? The only thing I was thinking of is so often a child learns very early that if it, if it keeps whining, it gets its way. So I think that would probably be why it has more of a tendency to whine around its mother than it does around someone else. I think probably early in a child, they learn who they can play upon. And a lot of them soon learn that they can play upon their mother. Where if it's someone else, 
a lot of the traits and a lot of the tricks that they try on their mother, they won't try on someone else. I think what can be done about it is like Jim said, a mother needs to have respect of the child. She needs to demand respect of her child. And when you find a child that whines, if you immediately stop the whining by not giving in to them. For instance, if you told them they can't do something and they keep whining about it, then carry through with it that you can't do it, then punish them and discipline them for the whining. Just don't give in to the place of them of letting them whine. Another question, what do you do with older children who have built into them years of attitudes from the world before their parents were saved? Can they be changed, and how? Thank the Lord they can be changed. We've seen many, many examples of exactly that taking place. However, one of the great errors, especially in much older children, 17, 18, 19 years of age, they're 12, 13, 14, it's much easier to produce changes. But the thing to remember is just as good habits can be fixed, bad habits are also fixed. And here again, the law of gradualism is important, that people change, they learn gradually, and they unlearn gradually, and they reestablish new habits gradually. Cannot change people too quickly. They like the same neighborhoods, they like essentially the same friends, the same people. If you're constantly moving them about back and forth, many of them can suffer shock, actually. They get, they get to where they, they do not wish to meet new people anymore. Too many, too much, too soon. Now, same thing with a child. The parent gets saved, mother and father, and in a moment of time, they become zealous evangelists, demanding that the child instantly become something different, when maybe he's not even converted. And in fact, the child cannot change that fast. And far from bringing about a change which could be brought about with a little slowness, a little understanding, letting the child really see that what's happened to mother and father is a basic, deep, and real change that's taken place. He does not see that. He only knows that yesterday something was all right, and today he's being yelled at, and tears are being shed, and he's being threatened with hell and all other kinds of things, and he simply is not, he can't handle it. He, it's so big a change for him, he just simply wants to get away from it as fast as he can. But if a parent wisely changes, lets the changes be seen, gradually begin to work on him, he will, it's built in. The Lord has made it that way. That child will gradually begin to change and probably find the same conversion experience as mother and father and then be on his way to a real experience. Mm -hmm. The only thing I would say is that it would take a, a lot of patience with both the father and the mother or if one... You know, if, if the mother gets saved and not the father, it would take a lot of patience in working with the child. But like Jim says, the child can be changed, but you have to go at it slow and work, give it a time to to work out of a child and in a child what they need to do. Okay, this was one that was submitted. I would like you to talk about the expectations put on children to not be noisy or dirty or careless or not to touch anything or not to act like children. I grew up 
being not allowed in the living room because the furniture might get ruined? How much must children be made to act like adults so they won't break or dirty our things? Or is it okay to have less nicer things so your children can relax and enjoy you and your house and not be nagged about material possessions getting ruined? Again, that's a question that requires a relative answer, and the question there might be assuming an answer. The answer that it may be assuming is that a child cannot be trained to come into the living room and still treat possessions in a proper way. A child can learn, like he can learn anything else, what to do and what not to do. Now, there should be areas in the living room where a child can play freely. For instance, the carpet ought to be a clear area where the child can play. Some chairs where certainly the child can, his own chair, his own size or something, where he can come and sit on, that's his. But now it is not the same thing to say that for the child to enjoy himself, he ought to be able to come in so we have in our living room deliberately broken down things, dirty things, so the child can come in with muddy feet, go up on the couch, jump up and down, or break the springs, and that's enjoying himself. That is a very clear case of a lack of general training to fit into society. Because if he does that on your couch, then he goes over to visit a friend, he sees nothing wrong with rushing in, jumping up on that friend's couch and jumping on, breaking the springs down there, and pretty soon no one will want you over for a visit, nor will they wish to come to your house to visit you. And it's a type of very unfair treatment to the child to not give him the type of training that will make him generally fit with the whole of his society. Now, on the other hand, if the parent is overly reactive to his child and he buys the best of everything and he never wants a, anything to touch it, and so, so the child actually is afraid to live in his own home, that is not good for the child either. But there can be a right balance. But in any event, whether you have the finest of things or very poor things, all you can afford. Still, the child must be taught to respect the property of others as well as his own. And when he's breaking things up or dirtying them or that type of thing, now not normal soil from wear and tear or normal living, but I mean just no training. That's what it really is. Now, if you train a child, wipe your feet before you come in, son. After a while, he knows to do that automatically. He doesn't have to think about that anymore. He just knows to do that. And don't jump on the couch. That's not for that. He learns after a short time to do that. Now, he learns the place to do the jumping is either on the floor in the living room if the parents are at the point where they can play with the child a little bit and say, okay, jump up and down, son. Daddy will jump with you and so forth. There might be a proper place for that. But outdoors... That's the place to do the jumping and the running and the rolling and the tumbling and so forth. Come in the house, that's a place for quieter pursuits. Though I used to wrestle with my children on the floor and we had a good time, but I did not allow the children to get up and down, jump on the couches and break the springs, and they had to learn not to do it. So it's, it's a, a judgment matter and really doesn't even take like a critical super revelation from God. God has given that revelation to parents say, well, this type of behavior simply does not fit in with our society. And I want my child to grow up so he can relate to the widest number of people and be at peace and content with that.